Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. It is good to have you on today, and uh, in just a minute, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. If you want to be turning a Bible over there or getting your favorite Bible app open and turning to that, uh, you're more than welcome to. We're going to start there in just a second. We're going to be talking about seeing Jesus clearly and looking at some statements from him that help us understand him a little bit better and get a bigger picture of who he is and what he is about. Joining me today, I've got Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. How's it going, Jeff? Very, very good. Good afternoon, Chase. Good and everybody. Good. And uh, we've also got a big time guy with us today. We've got Joe Works um, up in Elmira, New York. Um, you might recognize him from the very reputable and well-known Tuesday edition of this show. He made a cameo appearance there yesterday. So we're glad that you are just gracing us with your presence here today, Joe. How are you today? Fine. I'll stay on as long as I can. I, I do have a, an appointment with my uh, uh, program manager, so we'll, we'll see how that works. Um, oh, I'm well aware. He, he sent me the documents <laughs> I had to sign just to get you over here. So, so anyways, glad you're on today and uh, look forward to your feedback. Um, we tried to get Don Bunting, but you, you, you were the best we could offer. So glad, glad to hear. <laughs> Guys, uh, if you would have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 8 as we kind of introduce this topic. Um, Joe, if you just would jump in for me and read verses 22 through 26, and we'll talk about it after that. Sure. Uh, I'm reading from the New King James. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. When he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. He looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. He sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. All right, guys, you all are well-read Bible students. Have you ever seen a miracle done like this other than this one? Whenever Jesus is doing miracles and, and specifically healing blind people, like we saw him do in John 9 and like what we saw him do earlier in the Gospel of Mark, is this normally how Jesus does it? No, this one is a little odd because a lot of times, you know, I've made the contrast through the years. You look at modern day faith healers and or somebody thinks they've been healed by a faith healer. And, yeah, I went to this faith healing service and then I started feeling a little bit better. And then after a couple of weeks, I was a lot better. And then after about a month, I was pretty much better. And I make the point, no, when Jesus did miracles, it's like that. He's completely whole right away, but not in this one. Yeah, this one's definitely the kind of asterisk to, to everything Jeff just said. And again, when you look at this and you look at all those other accounts where Jesus just does it instantly, you can't look at this one and say, oh, well, he just got it wrong on the first try and he had to do it again so that it happens. So it actually works. I don't think that would be the answer at all. In fact, one of the pieces to the puzzle that I think is helpful to point out is that this miracle Jesus does is only in Mark's gospel. Uh, several of the other miracles we have, normally there's a different gospel that tells the same miracle, and although not all four will tell all the same miracles, I believe the only miracle that's across all four would be the feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrection would be the two. Um, and so other than that, this one is only in the gospel of Mark, not in any of the other three. And I think what can kind of help clear it up for us is looking at the context of everything that's happened before and even looking at some things that have happened after. And then we'll make some big picture application for us today and those around us as well. So guys, as we think about this stage, two stages of healing that Jesus does, 
I'd like to point out that Jesus has been struggling and striving with his disciples in the previous context. Uh, just starting in chapter 8, at the very beginning, my, my Bible goes and labels it as the 4,000 fed. But one of the things that we know from earlier, back in chapter 6, is that Jesus had also fed the 5,000 previously as well. And as you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, you can't help but when you get to chapter 8, be like, oh, wait, did I like did I start over in the wrong chapter or what, what's happening here? Because you are rereading essentially the same story that Mark recorded for us back in chapter six, that Jesus feeds these 4,000 with very little bread and is able to multiply those and, and feed the multitude that is with him. And it's almost the same exact miracle. And not only the way he does it, but he gets the disciples to be the ones who are distributing the bread. And um, you also notice in this parable, just how, I guess, the word I'm looking for is clueless the disciples are. Um, whenever they're presented with this problem in chapter 8, it's like they had never been through it before. And after the miracle is over, the Pharisees, in verse 11, come to argue with Jesus and are seeking a sign from him. And Jesus is frustrated with them. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation and then he leaves them, he gets in the boat with the disciples, and they start on to the other side of, of the lake or of the Sea of Galilee. And Mark notes for us in verse 14 that they'd forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat. But what is Jesus wanting to talk to them about in verse 15 and 16? The, or for in, verse 15. The influence of the Pharisees and of Herod. But yeah, he doesn't and call it influence. Right. And, and contextually speaking, why would he want to be talking with them about that? Well, uh, I would just say maybe that well-known and famous personage, Joe Works, would be able to tell us that. I, I think, I don't know, Joe, do you got anything on that? Uh, well, I mean, I, I just, the, the obvious thought, those are going to be the, the individuals who uh, are going to present uh, a lot of danger to uh, the uh, apostles and to their teaching, um, uh, particularly the, the Pharisees. We, I mean, we can read through a, a good amount, even going into the book of Acts, about Pharisaic teaching. Yeah, and I think even contextually, with the same thing that the Pharisees had come at Jesus with in the previous section, they had already made it up in their minds that they're not going to believe in Jesus. Well, one more sign that Jesus would have presented isn't going to change their minds as to who Jesus is. And I think that fundamental idea of if, if you start with zero belief and aren't willing to budge on that, you're not going to get, a, get to move anywhere. I think about that being the lesson Jesus has just encountered and is now trying to teach it to his disciples as he's on the boat. And so that's why he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, Her of Herod. But the disciples miss that altogether, and they begin to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread in verse 16. And Jesus, you see his frustration, because aware of this in verse 17, he asks them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not yet see? Having ears, do you not yet hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? 
they have missed out on who Jesus is. They've been following him for some time now, yet they're still not seeing him clearly. And although they've had these multiple experiences with him, almost carbon copy experiences with him, they're still not realizing fully who he is. There, at this point, there's not a lot of difference. The Pharisees have come to Jesus asking for a sign right after the sign of the feeding of the 4,000. And now the disciples, they saw that sign, but they're not making the connection as well. They're not seeing, like you just now said, you know, that emphasis there uh, from verse 17 um, uh, or uh, uh, verse 18, 18. Um, uh, yeah, I I think that a lot of parallel there with what the Pharisees are claiming they want to see and what the disciples simply haven't made the, they haven't connected the dots. And it's also just interesting on a practical note, they do have one loaf in the boat, right? In verse 14. And Jesus has shown them multiple times. He can multiply the bread just from one loaf. And yet they still don't understand that he can do that even in this moment. Again, I think it goes to show that they only have a partial vision of who Jesus is, and they're not fully realizing what he's capable of. And so that framework for me, and Jeff might give some pushback on this, in verses 22 through 26, sets the framework for this miracle Jesus does. His apostles are gathered around him as he goes to heal this blind guy. And the way I read this, guys, in verse 23, Jesus takes the blind man by the hand He brings him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, the way I read this is he looks at his disciples, but he asks the guy, do you see anything? And as he's looking at his disciples, the guy says, well, I see men like trees walking around. Guys, would you define that as seeing clearly? No, no, he he was having a difficulty with seeing it uh, be like having glasses, but having them fogged up or something. Yeah, he's, things are still fuzzy. No one wants to settle for seeing fuzzy. And I really do think that's where Jesus is at with his disciples at this point in the gospel account. They're still seeing him fuzzy. They're not fully realizing who he is. And so Jesus goes and he lays his hands on his eyes again, and he's able to see everything clearly. Now he's got a bigger picture. Now he has a more full picture don't settle. I think this is the point. Do not settle for just a fuzzy picture of who Jesus is. It's interesting. You need that, to see him clearly. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. It's interesting that it goes immediately from that into who do men say that I am? Yes. And that is what I think makes this case is not just everything that's happened before, but everything that's happened after. Because we might be tempted to say, well, you know, they might not know everything, but they've been following him for a while. Well, then Jesus will start asking them in verse uh, 27. Jeff, why don't you read that for us? 27 down to verse 33. And Jesus went forth and his disciples into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Who do men say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who say ye that I am? Peter answers and says to him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke the saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. 
But he turning about and seeing his disciples rebuked Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan, for you mind not the things of God, but the things of men. All right. So if we're tempted to think that, no, they actually do have a good handle on Jesus is as Jesus is trying to get them to think about who they think he is, or if I can word that another way, who they see him to be, Peter will pipe up and say, you are the Christ. Guys, Christ means anointed one. It carries with it that connotation of the idea of someone being a king. And then what does Peter turn around and do to the king in verse 32? Corrects him. You're you're wrong. (laughs) Who corrects a king? I mean... Well, yeah, maybe someone would. A fool. Let me say it that way. A fool corrects the king. Peter was saying the right thing, but did he understand it? I don't think so. Um, I don't think he understood it well at all. And let me just say, this is one of three times Jesus is going to say that this is going to happen to him. It's really easy to remember, too. Mark 8, 31, 9, 31, 10, 32 are the three times Jesus will predict this. But Peter, although he, he's saying it, He's not getting it. He's still seeing men like trees walking. He's not seeing Jesus clearly. That's my take on that. What do y'all think? Well, I think you make a pretty good case there. I I do have a question for you. Um, And this may be off topic. If you don't want to chase this rabbit, just say so. But it's interesting that in verse 22, when they bring this blind man to Jesus, he took him and brought him out of the village before he does anything, before he spits on his eyes or anything. And then after he gives him his sight in verse 26, he tells him to go to his home, do not even enter into the village. So he brought him out of the village and then told him, don't go back into the village. So the question is, why? I don't know. That's why we brought Joe Works on today. Joe? I thought maybe so. <laughs> I, I wonder if there's any connection with Luke 10 uh with with that question uh beth zeta is one of the cities that, that is condemned in uh, luke 10 and in verse 13 woe to you chorazin woe to you beth zeta for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in tyre and sidon they would have repented a great while ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes it would be more tolerable than for tyre and sidon in that day so. to whom to whom uh I can't quote it. <laughs> to whom much has been given, much is required. But to whom little is that? They, they, in other oh. words, they have not yeah. done much with what they already had. They're not going to get more. Yeah. So that, if that, they that, see this blind man cured, they're not going to believe anyways. Is that the idea? I I, I think so. I mean, I, I don't. I, I couldn't say that with certainty. There, there's also the fact that if if Chase is right, and this is an a lesson to the disciples about where they are, the the twelve. Not, not disciples in general, but I guess the 12. I think that's what you're saying, Chase. And yeah. then, then we get to verse uh, 30. And after this discussion about who do men say that I am, who do you say that I am? And they come back with the right answer. You are the Christ. That he says, don't tell anyone. So he seems to be, he seems to be here focused on their understanding, talking to them. And this miracle is done for their benefit. Maybe Chase is right in a way to make a point to them about they're not seeing clearly yet. This was not something that was being done for the whole village, which has already rejected the evidence that they've had, the miracles that Jesus has done. And if I can just maybe, oh, go ahead, Joe, go ahead. 
Well, I was, I was going to make an application maybe beyond yeah. what you're talking about. So if you want to finish that up, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you can just go ahead. It's fine. Okay. So uh, I, I do think that that is the point of that miracle. Um, uh, I think maybe one way to think about this miracle is it's kind of a parable in action. Uh, mm -hmm. Jesus is using this man and, and performing this miracle to teach a lesson, a spiritual lesson. But to me, one of the other spiritual lessons that we get from this whole chapter is that the Lord doesn't abandon people when they don't get it the first time. Um, uh, I, I take some comfort in this. You know, it's frustrating for Jesus that, that the disciples don't get it. But, you know, other than, say, uh, you know, Jeff Smelser, uh, which of us understands it all perfectly the first time? Yeah, you know, no, that, that's exactly the point here. I mean, the Lord is incredibly patient with each of us, including Jeff Smelser. I mean, I just think back through my life and, and the amount of times I have had a feeding of the 5,000 experience. And I don't mean that I've seen some great miracle, but I, the Lord has brought me through something not once, but twice. And my thick skull still will not learn the lesson. Right. We'll still not learn to put trust in the, the Lord. I'm still seeing him fuzzy in a specific way. And um, I, I think that's exactly the point here. The Lord was patient with the disciples because I, I've uh, recently, one of my favorite things to do when I study with someone that's not a Christian is to study one of the gospels and then study the book of Acts. And for a crazy reason, I won't get into a couple of people I'm studying with that got flip-flopped where we went through the book of Acts and now we're going through the gospels. And one of the observations someone said is, is this the same Peter that we read about in the book of Acts? And it's hilarious because it looks like a completely different person in the book of Acts opposed to now. And what I said about that is like, it's the same guy. And I am thankful it's the same guy because it shows how patient the Lord has been yeah. uh, for it, Peter to get as far as he did. It's fitting that Mark 8, and, and as you're teaching through the book of Mark, and I know that you two have already seen this before, but it, it's great that this is right in the middle of the book um, because it really does describe where they've come from and all the way up to the cross, they're going to be confused about things. Um, yeah. and, and the Lord is just three and a half years of, of long suffering with these individuals. Chase, uh, I appreciate your pointing out the Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, and Mark 10, 32. You don't know how many times I've been in a situation where I was trying, okay, there's several times Jesus has told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed and raised the third day. Where are all those places? And I had never put it together that way, 8, 31, 9, 31, 10, 32. That's helpful. Yeah, no, I, I was doing a read-through of Mark, and I noted that, and it, it stuck with me ever since. Yeah, I think that'll um, stick with me now. Tell you, tell you one other thing, guys, on this section too. The case is well made going a little bit further, not only with the verses 34 through 38, where Jesus is explaining to them um, in verse uh, 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is trying to wake these guys up. You are going to have to go to the death with me. I mean, that, that's what he's talking about. Die, die to your own desires, your own wants, all that stuff is going to have to die. But what really is the nail in the coffin for me to show that Jesus is trying to clear up for them who he is, is on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter nine. Because in chapter nine, in verse two, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. 
and had brought them up on the mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His garments became radiant, exceedingly white, as no launder on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And a cloud formed, overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. So Peter is up there on the mountain with James and John. There's Moses, there's Elijah, there's Jesus. And Peter says, let me build a tabernacle for each of you. Guys, what does that communicate Peter understands about those three men? They're all equals. They're peers. They, right. Hey, looky here. We got three guys, um, all, all representatives of God, representing messengers from God, but he's not exalting Jesus. Right. You've got Moses representing the law. You've got Elijah representing the prophets. And then you've got Jesus who's just right there with him. And that is not at all who Jesus is. And that's what all of his miracles have been pointing to. And so what I think wakes Peter up is this voice that comes out of uh, heaven. And it does mention that Peter is terrified in verse six. Cloud over, uh, overshadowed them. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Yeah, Moses is important. Yeah, Elijah is important. Peter, you need to listen to Jesus. I think that would straighten Peter up. And I like to point this out. Guess what? Second Peter 1 in verse 17 yep. or verse 16. Yep. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That left an impact on Peter. And I think you see a turning point in his life there. Um, and so they're still seeing things fuzzy, but God is trying to push them to see Jesus more clearly for who he truly is. What a moment this would be. Moses went up on the mountain to see the Lord. Elijah went up on a mountain to see the Lord. These disciples go up on the mountain and it's revealed to them, the Lord is with you. Jesus is the one you need to be listening to. Uh, to me, that would just be amazing. Um, how often I need to apply what Peter failed to hear in verse six. If I don't understand the situation, if I'm not sure what I should say, there's one thing that I should do. I should hit the mute button. Um, he, he spoke because he didn't know what, and he didn't know what to say. So he just blurted something out yep. and boy, does that get us in trouble? Sometimes it's good to just sit back and learn or listen and learn. Uh, I, I, I learned a lot Tuesday in, in the, the Tuesday webcast. It was great. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you do that when you hear yourself talk enough. Um, Jeff, you got anything you want to add on this? So, so, okay. So if we have this scenario where Jesus is, is saying it and they're not getting it and, and he has to kind of hammer the point home, are there situations where Jesus has said things that people today just aren't getting? Oh, absolutely. And uh, that, was a, that was a great tie-in. That was beautiful, Jeff. Because, I mean, that's, that's what we want to spend our time, the rest of our time talking about. 
I think we live in a country today um, that I would call Bible illiterate. Um, as a Bible teacher, I am blessed to get to study with all kinds of people from different backgrounds, and the overwhelming majority do not know what Jesus said because they didn't read it. And I think it's important for us to take a step back and ask ourselves, am I still seeing Jesus fuzzy? Am I still seeing men like trees walking? Or do I see Jesus fully for who he truly is? Um, and one of the greatest ways we can step back and see Jesus more fully is to listen, um, is to listen to what he said. Uh, that really complements, or what really complements that point well um, is Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they're doing evil. I love that idea of drawing near to listen so that we can understand more fully who God is and who, who Jesus is. So, Jeff, or Joe, do you got anything on that? Well, I'm just thinking about uh, the, the concept today that there is no truth. Um, that the truth is relative, that, you know, your truth can be different than my truth. Um, one person's truth has 32 different uh, genders. Uh, somebody else's truth uh, has, uh, you know, men can be women and, and vice versa. And, you know, all sorts of things, even that one of the mantras recently has been follow the science um, uh, but it seems like it's perfectly fine to just deny not just science, but, but common sense and, and truth. I can believe whatever I want to believe, and that needs to be accepted. And I think that just recognizing that there is truth, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, I think some people just don't realize that Jesus is the truth. And, and needs to be followed. Yeah, th there's a lot of false concepts out there about how many truths there are. You know, speak your truth. What, what is your truth? And I, I think another way we were going to attack this if we were able to have our webcast last week was kind of the politically incorrect statements of Jesus. The things he said that are just an, an obvious contradiction to what the world is pushing right now. And the one Joe just quoted in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's not true in the world. I mean, people are looking and accepting all kinds of alternative ways to find satisfaction when Jesus made the statement that he was the only way. What, what other passages come to your all's mind as you think about this? Uh, maybe it can be along that lines of, of things Jesus said that no one would accept today or just things that Jesus said that help us see him more clearly. Okay, well, then we can wrap up there. Je Jeff, is, Jeff is uh, muted. <laughs> oh, that's you're, probably you're muted, Jeff. Oh, oh. He's, okay. he's looking something up, it sounds like. Yeah, I was oh. looking something up. We're just talking about truth. I was wanting to pull the quote up. Uh, there's a, a rabbi in New York City, I think it is, who is featured in, uh, in the um, presentation called patterns in exodus and he is apparently uh, a very popular and well-known large synagogue i guess um and he he denies the historicity he denies that the israelites coming out of 
Egypt uh, having been slaves and being led out by Moses and all. He denies that that actually happened. But there's a statement he makes in there where he, he says, well, it's not historical, but it may be your truth. It, it does, that he says, the fact that it's not historical doesn't take away from its being true. And I wanted to get the exact quote, exactly how he said that. So I was going to look that up, but I, I didn't find it before you caught me with my mic muted. Um, but, but the point that I wanted to get at is this is not just um, anti-religion people who do this, even amongst religious leaders. And that's, that's a lot of the problem. We got a lot of religious leaders who have no faith. Um, so they, we need to be aware of the leaven. Exactly, Joe. Thank you. The Pharisees were uh, people who had great religious standing as religious leaders in their in their culture, and yet Jesus said, "You need to beware of the leaven of these people." And the Sadducees were people who controlled the priesthood, and yet they didn't believe in resurrection or spirits or angels. And there's a lot of there are a lot of religious leaders today who do not believe Jesus actually fed five thousand with five loaves and two fish, or that. Jesus was literally raised from the dead, or that Jesus was literally born of a virgin. They have no faith. To them, it's just how you feel about it. That's your truth. So if the Pharisees are what we would just call the, the, the religious leaders of the day, and we can make that connection to whether it's that rabbi or Joel Osteen uh, or you know whoever in the religious leadership as it's perceived uh, in uh, in the world um then you have the flip side of that with herod um and thinking about who would who would herod be comparable to today that we need to be careful of uh of the influence of, of the leaven from them it's an interesting question i i, I would think the government <laughs> Um, uh, and, and that doesn't matter whether it's an R or a D uh, at the end of, uh, of the government. I think we need to be very cautious of following uh, the leadership um, uh, that, that is around us. You know, Herod had a good deal of influence amongst the, the Jews, um, some more than others, uh, but he certainly influenced them with immorality and laws and uh, some people viewing him as the one who was going to help them even, uh, building the temple and so forth, you know. Uh, he made his political promises uh, just like most other governmental leaders do. Mm -hmm. We need to be cautioned to, to not follow any man in, in leadership. They're, they're not our saviors. Right. Amen. You know, uh, we have a comment from one of the panelists as we think about some of these tough statements of Jesus that might not be accepted today and especially weren't accepted in their time. And this is one we actually had on our list, and it's in John chapter 6. And um, our viewer specifically quotes verse 35, where Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And so this is obviously the section where Jesus is talking about um, people eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Um, in verse 52, then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. There's that truth we're talking about, Joe, that, that isn't so easily accepted. And here's the thing. This passage 
or what Jesus said here, it wasn't just controversial now. It was controversial then. Guys, do you remember what the fallout of this was? Yeah, some of his, some of his disciples went away and, and no longer followed him. Yeah, that's exactly right. So in verse 66, it says that as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And Jesus has the audacity to look at the 12 guys who are still hanging around him and said, you do not want to go away also, do you? And of course, this is where Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Um, for all of the shortcomings that the apostles had they had this much going for them that they, they knew jesus had the words of eternal life they might not have understood everything that that meant at the time but they knew it to be true but yeah this caused a lot of people to stop following jesus um and i think statements like this are still confusing to people today thoughts on that one guys yeah go ahead joe no, I, I, amen. I uh, certainly agree with that. And we need to make sure that we maintain the hunger even where we don't understand. You know, I think that's the, the case there with the disciples. They clearly, by looking at Mark 8, we know they didn't get everything from John 6. Uh, they didn't understand everything that they should have from that. But Peter knows we can't go anywhere else. That there's enough evidence here that we have to keep on trying to seek more see more clearly. Yeah, this might be slightly off topic, but I appreciate what you said. They're, they have enough evidence to go off of and understand who Jesus is. The majority of, of people I've run into lately who either claim to be Christian or, or aren't Christians altogether, it's pretty impressive to me the amount of people who actually don't look for evidence to back up why they believe what they believe. Mm -hmm. Um, it's well, been, been kind of flooring to me. Yeah, go ahead. It's Jeff. because we live in a culture where belief is not supposed to be about evidence. It's just how you feel about something. And however you feel about it, that's your belief. That, that's all right. We've divorced faith from evidence. Mm -hmm. Faith from reason. Yeah. Um, and I, I, Scott Smelser, who um, is on the Tuesday edition, uses a really good illustration. Yeah, Joe recommends that the Tuesday should. Uh, by the way, this is Joe's last week with us. Uh, I thought I'd just go ahead and mention that. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But he, Scott, Scott's got a helpful illustration he uses when describing faith. Uh, but it's not in the typical way you might think. But if there's been snow here this last several weeks, and if I were to walk out into my front yard in residential Harrisburg, but if there had been tracks in my front lawn that looked like deer tracks and I, I know deer tracks well you can look at that and say well there's been a deer here did you see the deer no no I, I didn't see a deer at all but I looked at what the deer left behind to make the case and have a certain amount of faith that there has been a deer here and that faith was built on some evidence that was there and I don't think people realize that that's the case with Christianity as well. A lot of the times there's a friend of mine I've been studying with lately who comes from an atheist perspective. He grew up in a religious organization and we were going over the facts of the resurrection. And he said to me, I didn't know there were facts to back up the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I appreciated him sharing that with me because I think there is a common misconception out there that there, there is no fact to believe that Jesus was a real person and raised from the dead. But if people will simply, tying it back into what Joe was saying earlier, if people will simply take what little evidence they might already have and base their assumptions off of that, 
it would take them much further than unfortunately where a lot of people go. And the disciples didn't have much to go on. They had more to go on later when they actually saw Jesus raised from the dead, but they had enough uh, to go forward from there. Joe, go ahead. Uh, I would just uh, issue this as a challenge, not just to people that are agnostic or atheist and, and, you know, maybe they haven't seen the evidence, but believers, uh, we need to be believing in something, not just because it was presented to us or it's part of our culture or it's what our parents believed. We need to make sure that our faith is grounded in the evidence that's presented. Um, I, I think I, I've, I've ran across too many Christians who haven't really understood why they can uh, have the assurance of the, the hope that they have uh, based upon the, the evidence that is presented. Mm -hmm. Well said. What other passages do you all want to draw attention to that, that make this point that we need to see Jesus more clearly or some challenging things that we need to listen to? One of the things we have to do is let Jesus tell us things that we didn't already think. Um, okay. this, this is the problem. We get stuck in our ideas of what is, what is true. And then Jesus comes along and he says something that doesn't fit that. And so we have to say in our minds, either he didn't really say that, or he didn't mean that or something. But if Jesus is who he showed himself to be to the 12, if he is the son of God, if he is uh, the one come into the world from the father, if he is, as John says, the word become flesh, uh, who was with God and was God, uh, then you know what? We ought, might, ought not be surprised when he might say something to us that is not what we would have thought um, because he's greater than we are. And unless we're going to exalt ourselves and say, well, he, he, he's not greater than I am. He can't tell me anything I don't already know. Then we ought to be prepared for him to say some things that are not what we would have thought. And you have some topics that you were going to talk about. I don't know which one you want to go to. Um, I mean, you, you really set up well Matthew 5. Um, right, go, let's I go mean, there. Yeah, in Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who think something, and he's going to say something to the opposite of that effect. Yeah. Um, and he's going to do it by quoting from some Old Testament passages, quoting from things that are not from the Old Testament whatsoever, and then quoting from some things that are a mashup of something from the Old Testament plus a little something else. And so he does that in a variety of ways. But we'll start in Matthew 5 and verse 21. Um, I'll, I'll read that for us. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. And so the, the popular thing that was being taught in that day was, well, just don't commit murder. I mean, you can hate the guy. Uh, you, you can just let that anger boil up in your heart and hate him as much as you want. But as long as you don't murder him, then everything's okay. And uh, you know what? Just take him to court. Just let, let him have his day. And 
just kind of that attitude of as long as you don't cross this line, it's fine. But Jesus, as he does in the Beatitudes as well, he gets to the heart of the matter. Don't even be angry in your heart with your brother. That, that's really where the buck needs to stop. And I think that flies in the face of what we see today. You know, as long as I don't cross this line, it's okay. But Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the matter. Murder is, is one of those many ways he does that in this section. Yeah. And so he comes down in that very passage then, and he talks about some other th- things where they had some preconceived ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and one of them is divorcing a, a wife. Um, in verse 31, it was said also, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. The common conception in the first century amongst Jews was that whatever reason you had for divorcing your wife, that was fine. As long as you handed her a document, a writing that said you were no longer going to keep her as a wife, thus freeing her to marry somebody else then you were a righteous person because you had treated her well. You'd made it possible for her to marry somebody else. But Jesus has said in verse 20 that the righteousness of his disciples is going to have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And here the the application is, if you want to really be righteous, you can't give your wife a, a writing of divorcement and say, wow, I've been righteous. I've made it possible for her to marry somebody else. He says, you don't divorce her. Uh, that's how you be righteous. He says, if you do divorce her, she goes and marries somebody else. He says, if you do divorce her, she's just an adulteress. You've made her an adulteress. You've not made her somebody else's wife. And um, so that's a that's something that people don't get today. Uh, a lot of people well, would have a hard time with that. And they would say, well, that can't be right. Well, yeah. And it's like, well, why not? Why can't that be right? Well, it's not right because it's not your right. It's not your truth. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're trying to base our life off of the truth of, of Jesus. Um, so yeah, I think in a lot of different churches across all denominations, there are a lot of people who, whenever they go to get a divorce, they don't first ask, well, I wonder what Jesus had to say about that. It's just do it, do whatever you want. So this might be a good example or illustration of what we talked about from Mark eight. Jesus says that in Matthew five, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says it again in Matthew 19, very similar language after being confronted by the the Pharisees, um, uh, and he makes that teaching plain again regarding marriage and divorce, and after he does that, his disciples' response is in uh, Matthew 19, 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. That's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, He's not saying don't marry. He's saying you need to be committed uh, in that marriage. But, but to me, that's another example of where it's like, wait, if that's the case, then, you know, and how many times do we hear that sort of response even today yeah. regarding Jesus's yeah. teaching? Well, if, if that's what that means, then my, my grandma or my aunt or my, my brother, uh, and we begin to say, I can't reconcile that with what I've always believed. Yeah. Exactly. And so what we've got to do is try to see Jesus clearly. And, and look, uh, I mean, Jesus in, in his time, these are the people he was dealing with, people who didn't understand these things. And he is looking at them in the face and saying, you've got to change the way you think about this. You've got to change your conscience. And that's going to be a long process, but it's going to be worth it in the end. And I think we've gotten away from that 
um, even in, in Christianity, as Jeff was referencing a story earlier along those lines. But we, we constantly need to be tuning our mind and our conscience more into what Jesus wanted. It's not the other way around. Jesus isn't going to budge on this. Right. And, and what Jesus is saying is for our good always, as Deuteronomy talks about, and it's, it's the same with God's word all the way through. It, it, it's for man's good. Um, and so we need to rechange our thinking on, yeah. on those items. Yeah. Amen. Well, guys, this has been a fun, fun webcast. Thank you all for, for participating and uh, giving your comments. And if anyone is listening and uh, you, you want to know more about the Bible, you can reach out to us. Um, if you're watching on Facebook, then you're able to kind of get, get a hold of one of us that way. Or you're welcome to drop us a line on BibleQuest.tv. Thank you all for being on today. And Lord willing, we're going to pick up next Wednesday at three o'clock. Take care, everybody.